week ago, two young Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, and they kind of gave me what has become the new standard Jehovah's Witness pitch, um, which they really don't cut to the chase, uh, but it's just kind of a standard feel-good uh, I'm sure you've got a lot of suffering in your life. Here's a Bible verse about how to alleviate that suffering. Doesn't that sound great? You know, just kind of try to give you a little hope and maybe their church can make your life better. Uh, I was able to remind them, though, that there's no Bible verse that says, unless you flee suffering, you will die in your sins. But there is a Bible verse that says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So I was able to convince them that the, the issue of how to alleviate my suffering is far less significant than the question of who is Jesus. Uh, now, it was difficult to have a long conversation with them. My wife was gone, so I had a crying son and a barking dog in my house. Uh, and so I really wasn't able to... Uh, and they were very young girls, and that really changes the dynamic. I don't want to steamroll them or be too aggressive or bully them. So it was hard. How, how am I forceful and truthful and, and quick, right, but also say what needs to be said? And so the problem is I, just like, I was like, I'm just going to go to one verse, tell them to consider it more deeply, and come back if they have questions. But the problem is that there are just so many verses that teach the deity of Christ with such great clarity that it was hard to pick. You know, sometimes you go to a restaurant, they have almost too many options. It's like, I, I don't know what I want because just everything is good. I don't know. Just limit your options for me. That's kind of how the Bible is. It's this buffet of Christ's deity, and it's hard to know where do I begin. And so I eventually went with a passage from the book of Hebrews. But one of the passages that, in, one of the verses that entered into my mind, we have the privilege to read today. And John chapter 8 is one of our clearest, most poetic and exciting proofs of the deity of Christ. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We are going to finish the chapter today. We'll begin at the beginning, or at verse 48. John chapter 8, verses 48, and we'll read all the way through verse 59. When you have found your place in your Bible, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 8, verse 48, thus saith the Lord. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. When arguments fail, the Jews turn to ad hominem. 
Ad hominem is a Latin phrase and it describes a logical fallacy. And the logical fallacy, it's sometimes shorthanded as a personal attack. Although it's more than a personal attack. And ad hominem is when you try to discredit a person's argument because of who the person is. So this can't be true because so-and-so is like this guy. That's what we call an ad hominem attack, when you attack the person rather than the argument. And I was always taught that uh, ad hominems and raising your voice are always the next best thing to being right. Very, very rarely is the person who's right the one who reverts to ad hominem. The Jews have tried to debunk Jesus and their arguments have failed. And so they're left now with ignore the arguments and go after the person. So they call him names. They call him a demon-possessed man. They call him a Samaritan. Now, why would they call him a Samaritan? If you remember from John chapter 4, the Jews and the Samaritans were cultural and religious enemies. And one of their big beefs was over which one of our people groups are the true descendants of Abraham. Right? The Samaritans were saying, we're actually his children. The Jews were saying, no, we're actually his children. So if you remember last week, what did Jesus do? Now, he was obviously talking spiritual, not physical. But nonetheless, Jesus was questioning this people's true lineage and true connection to Abraham. So they, on the surface, say, he's siding with the Samaritans. He's a secret Samaritan. I told you, he's a Samaritan. Which is ironic because if you go back and read John chapter 4, Jesus actually denies the Samaritans' argument. He tells them they're wrong. So he doesn't agree with the Samaritans, but they go after him and they attack him as a Samaritan to try to discredit him. They call him demon-possessed. They call him other names. And yet Jesus just seems unfazed by this. Jesus is unfazed by their attacks, right? Let's look at that again. Look at verses 48 through 50 with me. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. So Jesus is not offended. He's not insulted or hurt by their personal attacks. And he tells us the reason why. And the reason is because he seeks his father's approval. Jesus didn't come to earth to win these people's opinions of him. He doesn't care about their opinions of him. There's one judge and it's not them. They're not Jesus' judge. The Father is the judge. And so Jesus is basically saying, listen, as long as I know the Father's pleased with me, I don't really care if you're unpleased with me. Which is really, really important. There's a, there's a, a lesson in there for us. Because let's, let's not act like this was an easy situation for Jesus. It's easy for us, you know, when we're distanced from this and we think so highly of Jesus to act like this was just, just super easy. Jesus was fully human. Okay? Have you ever been in a situation where you have a huge crowd of people mocking you, insulting you, calling you stupid, calling you names? It doesn't matter if you don't even like the crowd. That's a hard situation. This is a tough situation for Jesus. And yet, he's so courageous and he's so bold in it. And he tells us where his boldness comes from. I'm not interested in their opinions. I seek to live for the glory of God and God alone. So let me just remind you, I know it's easier said than done. But the, if you can live for the glory of God alone, you become untouchable. There's that old expression, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's close to true, but it's incomplete. Words can be very painful. What we really should be thinking is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me as long as I seek the glory of God. 
When you only care about the judge's opinion, then words truly cannot hurt you. Jesus doesn't care about their opinions. He knows he's in right with God. And he even takes it further. He not only says, listen, I'm not interested in your opinion. There's only one judge and it's not you. He even says, on top of that, I don't need to come here and try to prove myself to you. Because God's going to do that for me. The Father is going to glorify me. The Father is going to vindicate me. I don't need to prove myself to you. God is going to prove it to you. Right? He says this, read verse 54 with me. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Their God is going to glorify Jesus. Their God is going to defend and vindicate Jesus. And let me put it frankly, he needs it. Jesus needs it. He's going to need God's defense because the message that God gave him to say, the truth claims God gave him to make about himself are very offensive to men. What Jesus claims in this passage in John chapter 8 is offensive. It's scandalous, radical to the unbelieving world. Right? And if you don't believe me, let me just remind you at what Jesus' message, look at, let's remind ourselves of the kind of response it provoked from these people. Jesus' truth claims provoked three different responses. Number one, they call him demonic. Number two, they call him prideful. And then worst of all, they finish by accusing him of being blasphemous. They say he's a prideful, demonic blasphemer. That's what Jesus' message got him. Let's look at those, verses 52 through 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. They think his words are demonic because to them, his message is so ludicrous. Only a demon could ever possibly get a man to believe and say such things. This, this, is too, this is too crazy. This message is too crazy to even come from a human being. It must come from Satan himself. And that leads them to the next claim, which is that they think that he is prideful. Right? Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? That's just the fancy ESV way of saying, who do you think you are? You just told us that if we believe in you, we will never taste death. What you're doing is you're now offending Abraham because he did die. So I guess he did something wrong. He didn't live up to your standards. All of the prophets died. So they must, have done, they must not have lived up to Jesus' standards. They see Jesus as insulting Abraham and the prophets, putting them down. And so they ask this question, who do you think you are? Who does this rabbi from Nazareth think he is coming in, claiming to be better, more powerful, more holy than Abraham and the prophets? He's prideful. He's a demon-possessed, prideful man. That's what they think. But it all gets even worse. Jesus' message becomes so radical that it eventually culminates in them just flat out accusing him of being a blasphemer. Look at verse 59. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus' message crescendos to such a radical end that the Jews try to murder him on scene. They grab rocks to stone at him. And that tells us what they think because in the book of Leviticus, blasphemy was punishable by death. Blasphemy was a stonable offense. And, and you can see just how angry they are because even though it's true, blasphemy was punishable by death in Leviticus, there was still a legal process the claims had to go through. You don't just pick up rocks and kill someone the moment they say something blasphemous. There, there was a process to this thing, but they are so enraged. They are so offended. They say, forget the process, forget the Bible, kill this guy. Now Jesus, by God's providence, is able to evade them. But they just cut straight to execution. So you see, Jesus is going to need his father's defense. Because the claims of Jesus Christ are radical. And that really is the message for us today. What are we going to learn from the sermon today? I'll tell you beforehand. Jesus' claims are very radical. They don't sit well with the unbelieving world. And so let's look at these claims. What are the claims that Jesus is making about himself in this text that causes such outburst, that causes so much anger and confusion and hatred among people. Well, there's really three. There's three radical claims that Jesus makes in this text about himself. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And the first claim is that he is Savior. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is Savior. Look at verse 51 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus begins this verse with the truly, truly. This is something we've seen from him before. It's a common way for Jesus to preach. He preaches this way in John and all the other Gospels. And that was just a Hebrew way of adding emphasis. That's just the Hebrew way of saying, listen up. This is as true as it gets and this is as important as it gets. But let's get our focus back here. It's, it's, it's a heavy, heavy emphasis. And he's saying, what is so important that he needs to begin truly, truly? If you believe in his word, you will not taste death. You will never die if you believe in Jesus. And so what we have to notice at the onset of this text is that Jesus is tying life to his very person. It's not just his message that saves but it's, the message saves because it's his. It's connected to him. He is claiming to be the one who saves. Let me, let me explain it with an example. If I were to next Sunday, before the sermon, stand before you from this pulpit and say, I'm going to preach a message to you today, and if you believe it, if you believe my message, you will never die. And I don't think you'd be that offended if you heard that. That's because you're already working with a certain context. You understand that it's not my message. I don't mean it in the same way Jesus does. It's, it's not my message. I didn't make it. it. It's God's message and I'm just the messenger. You would understand it that way. But the Jews hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not just saying like, hey, there's this message of life and I happen to be the one communicating it to you. He's saying, it's my message. It's mine. It originates in me. It's mine and it will save you and no other message can save you. He's tying it so close to himself that what he's saying is, I'm the one who saves you. You can't be saved unless you have me. That's why it provokes such a radical response from these people. Jesus alone, Jesus is the only one who can save you from death. 
Now this confuses the Jews. And this is what leads him, them to ultimately accuse Jesus of arrogance because they don't understand what Jesus means by death. They think Jesus is talking about physical death. That you will never physically die. And that's why they go, this is crazy. Abraham wasn't saved from physical death. The prophets weren't saved from physical death. So I guess, I guess uh, they just didn't live up to Jesus' standards then. Apparently they did something wrong. But that's a misinterpretation. It's, I'll admit though, it's an easy one to make. Because just as human beings, that's natural. When we see the word death on a page, that's what we think of. We think of one day we're all going to die. We think of a physical death. But I would encourage you to be very, very careful when you read your Bibles to automatically assume the word death is a reference to one day your soul leaving your body. I would be willing to bet, I haven't done a word study on this, but probably most of the time the Bible uses the word death, it's not talking about that. The Bible loves to actually do the opposite. When it talks about physical death, it'll use the analogy of falling asleep. When the Bible talks about death, it's usually talking about something much broader than just your soul departing from your body. And by the way, this, is, uh, this, goes all, this takes us all the way back to the fall of man itself. I think that death is used in a broader sense the very first time it's ever used in the Bible. In Genesis 2, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Do you know how many atheists I know who will point to this as a Bible contradiction? Because what happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Did they die that day? No. They lived for hundreds of years. Now, I think that the word death here does include their physical death. They, they, they began that process of physical death. But it's broader. God is not just saying the second you eat the apple, you'll fall dead. He's talking about a spiritual death. Being separated from God. And that happened the second they disobeyed. They died. Which is why the Bible can speak of us, by the way, in books like Ephesians, as being dead in our trespasses and sins. They died. The primary view of death in this text, I think it includes physical death, but it's broader. It's a spiritual death. It's a spiritual separation from the life that God intended us to have. So Jesus is not talking about being saved from physical death. Believers are still going to physically die one day. But Jesus is promising you that even though you're going to physically die, there's a different death that you won't taste. And that sounds kind of silly, right? Like, are you, am I up here, a Christian pastor, am I trying to say that it's possible to die twice? And the answer to that is yes. Book of Revelation chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You will be hurt by the first one, but you won't be hurt by the second one. There's a second death. And you think, okay, well, what is that a reference to? What does that mean? Revelation defines its own term at the end of the book. Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Second death is judgment. It's hell. It's an eternal separation from God. For the Bible, hell is the second death. Now, there are, I want to clarify, there are people who falsely draw from this language 
a doctrine called annihilationism. And annihilationism is a view that denies that hell is eternal. And they say that, well, since hell is called death, the only way to understand that is that when people go to hell, they're exterminated, they're annihilated. And so they say you're just sort of cease to exist, and that's what hell is for them. But that's a false conclusion to draw. Revelation speaks nothing of that. As a matter of fact, the Bible clearly attests in many other places that hell is an eternal place where the fire never dies. So it's wrong to assume that understanding of death here. The fact is, is that scripture, again, almost never talks about death as ceasing to exist. That's not death in the language of the Bible. Even when you physically die, you don't cease to exist. So even our first death is not a ceasing of existence. It's just when your soul departs your body. But you still exist even when you die the first time. So there's no reason to assume that when you die the second time, you're not going to exist. Death is just simply not about the ceasing to exist. As a matter of fact, the second death, that's why the second death is really more of a death than your first one. It's a truer death than your first one because that is when people are officially cut off from the life of God. You are dead because you are not receiving the life that God created for you to have. You've been separated from life. That means you're dead. And Jesus is talking about this kind of a death. If you believe in Jesus, you'll still physically die one day, but you will never taste the second death. You will live forever in glory, and it's Jesus who does that. And that's a radical claim. To claim to be the Lord who has the keys to life and death itself. No one will live without my permission. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's a radical claim. It offended the Jews then. It offends our world still today. But it gets better. That's not the only radical claim Jesus made in this text. He did claim to be the Savior. But he also claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 56 with me. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Throughout John chapter 8, the Jews were constantly sort of pitting Abraham against Jesus and Jesus is pitting them against Abraham. Abraham is very much the focus of John chapter 8 at a surface level. And, and they just got done doing that very thing. You, you must think that, you, that, that Abraham was this really bad guy because he died and you're saying that the good people won't die. And so Jesus is basically saying, to the contrary, not only am I not against Abraham, Abraham's on my team. Abraham looked forward to my incarnation. He looked forward to the messianic day of salvation. He was excited to see me come. Now, this is a deep teaching, right? Like, what on earth does it mean? Some theologians think Jesus is referring to a theophany, which is when God makes a temporary visible form in the Old Testament. Abraham spoke with some kind of visible form in the Old Testament, and I think that was a pre-incarnate Jesus. But I don't think that's what it's referring to here. That's a minority view in church history. Some people think it's Abraham's perspective from heaven. Abraham died, went to heaven, he met Jesus, Jesus went to earth, and, and he saw that and he rejoiced. That's also a minority view. I don't think that's what it's saying. And the reason is because if you notice very carefully, the verse does not say, Abraham saw me. It says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 
And so Jesus is really referencing something a little broader. He's referencing the Messianic age. And so here's why this gets really interesting. This tells us that Abraham knew a little bit more about the gospel than we typically give him credit for. Abraham, when he was promised that he would have many descendants that would bless the world, he somehow came to understand that within that promise was the primary promise that there would be a single descendant of his, a single seed, and it is through that single seed that the world would be blessed. In other words, if you were to ask Abraham about the gospel, he would be able to tell you that it was the promise of a Messiah. He knew that. He knew God's anointed one, one of his children, would one day save the world. Abraham knew far more about the gospel than we give him credit for. And Jesus is telling us that. Abraham knew the Messiah would one day come and save the world. And when he heard that promise, he embraced it and it made him glad. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one Abraham was putting his hope in. I'm the one Abraham was so excited to see come into fruition. Abraham has been believing and has been glad to trust in me. And so this means something, this has ramifications for us here. This doesn't just mean that Jesus is the Messiah. It does mean that. It's a reminder that the entire Old Testament, all the promises of God are all pointing toward Jesus. Right? The coming Messiah is the chief promise of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is built around and working toward this great promise of a coming Messiah. So when Jesus says, I'm him, I'm that Messiah, he's saying the whole Old Testament is about me. Which is why when you go back in your Old Testament and you read about Abraham's faith, you know now, who was he believing in? Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus is telling the Jews, your religion has always been about me. I'm the central thesis. I'm the central figure of your entire religion. And it's always been that way. And if you think that I'm reading too much into this, I'm not. But let me just give you Jesus saying it even more clearly. After his resurrection, he appears to his disciples. And when they show some confusion, he rebukes them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says that whole Old Testament, every last word of it, guess who it's about? It's about me. He met up with a, with a larger group of them a week later saying the same thing. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Could Jesus be any more clear? What's the Bible about? It's about him. Abraham believed in Jesus. Moses put his hope in Jesus. David put his hope in Jesus. That's the claim that he's making to these Jews. He's not only claiming to be the only way of salvation, he's claiming that he's always been the only way to salvation. No one has ever been saved but by Christ, but through Christ. That has always been how we are saved. So we ought not to think that Abraham and Moses, well, they lived before Christ, so they had to kind of like their own salvation system. But now that Christ is here, we're saved by Christ. Abraham was saved by Jesus. Moses was saved by Jesus. 
We've all been saved the same way by Jesus and Christ alone. And I want to actually show you a really powerful verse just to further Jesus is showing. Let me give you a specific example from the Apostle Paul. If you want to understand, if you want to believe that even in the Old Covenant, even in the Old Testament, it was still Christ who was the substance and life of people. Notice how Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Our New Testament sacraments point us to Christ. In baptism, we receive Christ. In the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ. And guess what Paul is saying here? That's not a New Testament reality. When they ate the man in the wilderness, that was Christ. When they drank from the water in the wilderness, that was Christ. When they passed through, when they received their baptism passing through the sea, that was Christ. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are both about Jesus. And they're all pointing us to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And you can imagine how offensive that would be to the Jews. As Jesus comes before them and says, not only am I the only one who saves, I'm the only one who's ever saved. Abraham looked at me from a different perspective. He looked forward at me. New covenant believers look back at him. We're coming at it from different vantage points, but we're all saved the same way by looking to Christ. Now, the problem for Jesus' audience is they yet again misunderstand him due to the hardness of their hearts. They don't understand that Jesus is speaking about Abraham's typological knowledge of him. He knew him by trusting in the promise of God, which was Christ. They think he's talking about something more literal, that, that Abraham and Jesus were like contemporaries, like they were buddies, like they were pals. And so that's what causes them to say, you know Abraham. <laughs> you're, you're not even 50 years old. Jesus is like 30 years old at this point, and he's claiming that a guy rejoiced in Jesus who lived 2,000 years before this. What are you, you 2,000 years old? You best friends with Abraham? And rather than just correct their silliness, in a way he affirms it. He tells them, as a matter of fact, I do know Abraham. And this is what sparks him to make his most radical claim of the entire text. Not only does Jesus claim to be the Savior, not only does he claim to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus is God. Verses 57 and 58. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here, Jesus is claiming to be none other than God himself. And this, by the way, helps us make sense of the other two claims. The other two claims really are pretty offensive and radical if Jesus isn't God. But once, if you can believe he's God, the other things are easy and mandatory. Of course he's the only way to be saved. He's God. Of course he's what the whole Bible's about. He's God. Jesus is claiming he is not a mere creature. He is the eternal God. Now, how does he claim that? Because he doesn't technically say that, right? In your English Bible, it doesn't have the word God in there. He doesn't say, I am God. So how is, is he claiming to be God? 
Well, there's really two ways. First, he used the divine name. Now, I won't go into a lot of background because he used it last week. and We already talked about it last week. So just as a quick reminder, Jesus says that he is the I am, which in the Old Testament was the name that God gave to himself, Yahweh. He takes the name that only has ever been applied to God and he gives it to himself. He says, hey, you know how God told Moses to call him I am? I'm telling you, I'm that I am. I'm the I am. So he actually is literally calling. This isn't even implication here. This is as literal as it gets. I'm God. I'm Yahweh. I'm the great I am. This is literally calling himself God. He is taking on the name of God. And and, and even if you want to try to deny that, you have to face the fact that that's certainly how the Jews understood him. Because what did that lead to in verse 59? The attempt to kill him for blasphemy. They understood he was making a divine claim that is blasphemous for any creature to make. But there's other contextual clues that make this even stronger. It's not just the fact that he takes the divine name for himself, but he's claiming to be eternal in this text. Right? And he kind of does that in two different ways. First, he's speaking, he says, before Abraham was. So he's claiming he pre-existed his birth. Bethlehem is not when the Son of God came into existence. Because Abraham lived 2,000 years before Bethlehem, and Jesus is saying, I was already there. He's claiming to be eternal. He says, yes, as a matter of fact, I am older than Abraham. Not his human nature, but the Son of God is much older than Abraham. He's claiming to be eternal. Now, there was an early Trinitarian heresy, one of the biggest in the churches. This is what led to the creation of the Nicene Creed, known as Arianism. And Arianism found a way around this understanding that Jesus pre-existed the creation. Because Arians, you see, uh, by the way, modern-day Arians would be someone like a Jehovah's Witness, other Unitarians. What they've done is they've kind of come up with a clever way to deny that Jesus is God. Jesus is not God, but we do think that he existed before Abraham. And so they do that by saying that Jesus is just God's greatest creation and his first creation. That God made Jesus and he's kind of like this super powerful demigod angel. He's a super powerful creature. God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. So yes, they would say Jesus is not God, but yeah, he, he's older than Abraham. But they can't, they still have a big problem in this text. And that is, the name that God has given for himself is in the present tense. Have you noticed that this text grammatically doesn't make sense? What should, if Jesus wanted to to please a grammarian, what should he have said? Before Abraham was, I was. Right? They need a match. The verbs, the tenses, they need to match. Before Abraham was, I was already there. He should have said something like that. But he didn't say that. He said, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. Present tense. It doesn't make sense. At least not grammatically. It makes perfect sense theologically. Because who is God? He's the eternal one. Does eternity have a past? No. Does eternity have a future? No. It's outside of time. 
Eternity needs to be thought of as a constant presence. And Jesus is saying, I am that constant present tense. You go back in time, I am. You go forward in time, I am. You go now, I am. He's always in the active. This is so much so, I don't have time to get into it. I'm already over time. But theologians have even gone on to talk about how God does not have existence. He is existence. You and I have existence. God doesn't have existence. He is existence. He is the eternal, ever-present I am. And Jesus is saying, that's me. The ever-present I am can't be created. Because then, like Arius himself said, there was a time when the sun was not. But Jesus is saying, no matter how far back you go, I'm there. Jesus is claiming in very explicit terms in this verse to be the eternal God. And by the way, this text not only refutes Arianism, it also refutes the other famous Trinitarian heresy called Sabellianism. The way the Sabellians get around this, we call them today modalists. They say, okay, I agree with you. Jesus is the eternal God and he has existed eternally. I get it. But they say, but the way we'll make sense of this is we still don't want to do that weird Trinity thing. We don't want to affirm that weird Athanasian creed, right? That was weird, right? I don't want to affirm that. So what they did is they just said, Jesus and the Father are the same person. Jesus is the Father. The fa- in eternity, God was the Father. In time, he became the Son. And then a- after turn, he'll go back to the Father. That doesn't make sense. You know, we don't have time to go back, but read verses 49 and 50, 54 and 55. It doesn't make sense. Who is the God that's supposed to be glorifying the Son? The Father shall glorify me. The Father is the judge over me. Who's this Father Jesus is talking about if they're just one and the same person? Jesus, it would have been a contradiction for Jesus to say, I don't glorify myself, the Father glorifies me. The modalists are saying he and the Father are the same thing. So that would be Jesus saying, I don't glorify myself, I'm the one who glorifies myself. What do we have in John 8? We have different people, the Father and the Son, different personages, different personages, yet both personages in this text are called God. And these are all speaking as monotheistic Jews who believe there's only one God. So here's what John 8 forces you to believe if you believe the Bible. There's multiple personages called God, but there is only one God. If you have a better way of explaining that other than the Trinity, I'm all ears. Do you see now why the Athanasian Creed is such a blessing? Do you see now why the Trinity is such a blessing? The Trinity is the doctrine that actually helps us to piece our whole Bibles together and not read it with one eye shut. Ignore the part that the Father and the Son are different. Ignore the part where Jesus claims to be the I Am. The Trinity is the only way to believe in the whole Bible. There is one God, three persons, so that Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully God. So who is the Father? He is God. Who is the Son? He is God. Are there two gods? Nay, there is but one. That's the Trinity. So if you're looking for an application, what do I take away from John 8? Here's a pretty simple one. Don't be a Jehovah's Witness. Don't be a Mormon. Don't be a Unitarian. Don't be any group that would bring shame to the distinction of the Father and the Son or bring shame to the full and complete eternal deity of Christ. Be a Christian. Be a Trinitarian. But technically, this this was written before the word Trinity was invented. This was written before the devil created these views like Arianism. So if you wanted something a little bit more faithful to the text, this is what I think John 8 tells you. 
that God the Father has testified that His Son Jesus is the eternal God, the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, and the only way to be saved.